0: Thank you for that introduction and I'm so grateful to the organizers for allowing me to present to you today. Um, I'm one of those that kind of wanders around so I'm going to hold the microphone. But I'm <clears throat> yeah, I'm very excited about uh, this research, particularly because we're focusing in on those rare mutations. I'm so really excited to hear about the, the six o'clock talk tonight as well. Um, I think there is a lot of hope and um, it doesn't require a whole lot more effort to really start to reach out to um, a lot of these rare mutations, which only a few people have. And so I'm going to to literally lock in on Arginine 933 and I'm going to tell you why. But this work here is a really strong collaboration between myself uh, and Dr. John Kappas at UAB. Uh, John is in the Department of Medicine. And I was hired in the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology 13 years ago as the first structural biologist in the department. And um, I have to confess that I didn't know anything about pharmacology uh, even during my job interviews. It's really a miracle that I actually got the job. But I, I see a really exciting merging of two fields One of structural biology, which I received my formal training in structural biology at Yale. I I studied a a human copper transporter by cryo-electron microscopy for my PhD. And then at Scripps, I did the x-ray crystallography work that Julie talked about with uh, MDR1 PGP. Um, And uh, one thing I'm learning about pharmacology is, you, you may have heard these two terms, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. This is really first principles of pharmacology. And um, in pharmacokinetics, this is basically um, what the drug does to a body, the body, and, and pharmacodynamics, the opposite, what the, what the body does to a drug. Um, actually, I said that reverse. Pharmacokinetics, what the body does to a drug, and pharmacodynamics, what the drug does to a body. And I see a sort of um, central zone here called, I'm calling structural pharmacology, Well, we're very interested in precise atomic level description of how drugs interact with their target proteins. For example, MDR1 that I'm going to talk to you very briefly about, because that's what got me into work with CFTR and cystic fibrosis. So first, I want to tell you about my work at Scripps for my postdoc very briefly, because this is how I got really interested in pharmacodynamics at a structural point of view and structural pharmacokinetics. Uh, The work with ABCB1 or MDR1 is essentially pharmacokinetics because ABCB1 or MDR1 is one of the most important drug pumps in the body for detoxifying us from anything that that your body doesn't want. So if you forget to wash the salad, there could be pesticides on there. Those are substrates of P-glycoprotein. They get pumped into the bile and cleared out. Just about every therapeutic drug that that we use, the body doesn't really want. It is cleared out of the system, and there are several drug pumps, including uh, ABCB1, that do that. So this is a point of view of how these transporters can recognize the drugs and pump them out. That's a pharmacokinetics problem, okay? And so it was a great mystery because uh, MDR1 is one of the most promiscuous drug drug pumps in nature, meaning that it can transport possibly more than 100,000 different drugs and toxins. How can one single protein recognize that many compounds? Well, that was the purpose of the study. And now we have um, a lot of information over that. So I managed in 2019, uh, 2009, 2009 to solve the X-ray crystal structure. To get an X-ray crystal structure, you have to purify your protein and go through the, the steps that Julie mentioned uh, and coax it into a crystal. And you're really lucky if you can do that. But in this case, I was lucky and I did that and it allowed us to see one particular drug locked exactly halfway through the lipid bilayer and how it is interacting with the molecule. And then a whole lot of things start to make sense because, um, and we're not going to go into too much detail because I want to get on with CFTR. That the uh, a lot of the amino acids here are what we have called aromatic amino acids. So, also from chemistry, you might remember that we have some pi orbitals that can delocalize and they swirl around local rings. And those pi orbitals in the drug can communicate with pi orbitals in the protein, and that allows the protein to recognize a lot of different, slightly different combinations and interactions. So P-glycoprotein, or MDR1, can rep- recognize many, many different substrates to t- pump out of the body because of this property of uh, delocalized electrons and pi orbitals. What I didn't mention was uh, to undergo what's called x-ray crystallography, or abbreviated here XRC, we often have to play what we call the, an ortholog screening uh, uh, ortholog trials, or I call it the ortholog game, because it really seems to be like a, 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 a shot of luck. Because, um, most, of course, most of the time we're interested in the human protein, but for some reason, human membrane proteins seem to be really refractory to crystallization. And so what we have to do is we have to try other species. So, for example, these are all the ones that I tried to purify scripts um, and, uh, I was only able to crystallize mouse MDR one. So that's the structure that you just saw. And this is an enormous amount of effort. Trust me, I did 15, 16 hour days in the lab. Uh, and I was very, very lucky to be actually get mouse to crystallize. It's a real hit or miss with someone's career, but that's what structural biology was before this thing called cryoEM came along. Then this thing called cryoEM came along. Now, I said at Yale, I did cry OEM, but back then the technology was not as well developed and the resolution wasn't as good. We could not see small molecules at the resolutions of more than 10 years ago. That has totally changed. Mm -hmm. This is human MDR-1, Mm -hmm. solved by Casper Locos Group in 2019. And he has managed to trap one of the most important anti-cancer drugs used in every clinic in the country, in the world called Taxol very close to the same pocket that I just showed you with mouse. And we can see, we can confirm that taxol is being recognized by the molecule in addition to hydrogen bonds with these pi orbital interactions. And I will also note that for, for any of you that have seen this before, look how beautiful the side chain density is. This is really, really crisp resolution. For a protein that no one has ever been able to crystallize, human MDR1. Many labs have tried, I have. And so this goes to show you that this new technique is a game changer for us. And that's why I'm excited because now we're going to be able to see at a much higher rate, structures of really important human membrane protein targets including CFTR with investigational drugs, uh, leads, hit lead compounds and FDA approved drugs to better understand how they work. So for example, um, in that same year 2019 another lab at Purdue who's now uh, at at Rockefeller Chen's group solved the structure the cryo-EM structure of CFTR in the presence of Ivacaftor VX770 and this really stunned me because the location of the compound is exactly halfway through the lipid bilayer so I'm drawing that the people online aren't going to be able to see that I apologize that I should have delineated it but the upper half of the protein is where the phospholipid membrane uh, snugs around the protein. And this drug binds on the outside of the protein, but halfway through the bilayer. That's a really interesting binding pocket. It's totally different from the MDR1 site that you just saw with, that was stuck inside the, inside the protein. So somehow, this VX770 is doing something really, really good for this protein because we know that's an FDA-approved drug and we know essentially that it opens the probability of some of these mutants that fall into the gating defect category like the G551D. So if you zoom into this area, the other thing I like about this work is it didn't just show this for one compound, one drug. It showed it for another one. They're both potentiators. This one here called GLPG1837 is a lead compound earlier in the drug discovery pipeline, but they both bind in the same place. They're both uh, efficacious in repairing the open probability of certain mutations. And look what's happening. There's a really, really intimate interaction with an arginine at position 933 in two different cryoEM structures, one in pink and one in uh, cyan. So this is highly likely to be some kind of hydrogen bond that's happening between the arginine and these polar inter- these polar locations on the compound hydrogen bonds inside the membrane hydrophobic membrane have extra strength they're much more strong uh, much stronger than hydrogen bonds in a, in a water environment a bulk solvent so these are going to be very very powerful interactions the other bizarre thing that I caught my attention was Arginine, as I showed you from this periodic table of amino acids is positively charged, but it is, exists inside this hydrophobic section. And that normally is a no-no because things that are charged don't like to be in the membrane. We learned that from Rod McKinnon who won the Nobel prize with potassium channels and explained how, how potassium has to be transported and, and, and across the uh, hydrophobic space through careful interactions uh, with the protein as it leaves water through the membrane and then gets water back, hydrated back again. So this should be a very expensive endeavor to put an arginine in the middle of the bilayer. And I thought that was really odd and interesting. And clearly from these structures, it's doing something really, really important in its interaction with IVCAFTER, VX770. So then I thought, well, how important is this arginine in the molecular evolution of CFTR? And it looks like it's very important, because in this alignment here, we have human CFTR at the top, and there are a bunch of elasmobranchs, so sharks and skates, which evolved going all the way back to the Devonian period, about 300 million years ago. Then we have a plethora of mammals, and all the way at the bottom here, the sea lamprey, which is an ignatha, which is a jawless fish which goes all the way back to the Ordovician period, right after the Cambrian explosion, about 350 million years, and an arginine is called for in this spot in every single species. Intuitively, that is amazing because it's a positively charged residue that's in a lipid environment, and it interacts with ivacafter Sounds like something really important is going in there. And that's why we wanted to probe deeper. So um, I, I should mention also in the science paper, um, they, uh, the group proposed that these hydrogen bonds were really critical. In fact, they just didn't see one with the arginine. They saw two other hydrogen bonds, Y-304A, uh, uh, with 304, 308, and 933. And one of the ways that they tested that hypothesis, they mutated each one to alanine. And I showed you alanine is, is a small amino acid that's not charged and it cannot undergo hydrogen bonding. And so presumably by losing the hydrogen bond potential in any one of these three positions and they don't see any binding of IVACafter to CFTR, that seems to confirm that hydrogen bonding is really, really important at all three spots with these potentiators, okay? At least uh, in terms of binding studies. So one of the first things we did was, before we knew that paper came out, we decided to make two mutations. One of them is pretty cautious because K is also positively charged, just like arginine. So that should be mild, but risky still because evolution says it should always be an arginine, at least for 350 million years. And then we also tried Y, R933Y and we ran those against what's called a band C Western blot test. So when CFTR is healthy and folded in the cell, it gets processed all the way up through the endoplasmic reticulum and through the Golgi, and it gets heavily glycosylated, about 20 to 25 kilodaltons of sugars, and that's an additional mass that the cell says, you're approved for sorting to the plasma membrane, you're a functional protein. If it doesn't make it, so we know well Delta F508 has some serious problems. It does not get approved for sorting to plasma membrane because it is not heavily glycosylated. And you can actually see a little bit downward shift in um, what we call band B. So we can see the difference between folded protein just from this Western blot, band C versus band B. And it turns out the first mutations that we made were strongly band C. We were very excited about that. So in, in evolution, well, wait a minute, it doesn't seem like the arginine is really that important, but hold on. So then we started to make more. So over here are seven or eight more and every single one that we made so far, A, C, E, F, H, Q, W all form band, form band C to various degrees. Okay, that's a good start. So I do need to remind you about these classes. Many of you have seen this before, but wild type CFTR uh, is considered normal. And um, there are several different classes of mutations that describe the pathology of the protein and hence the severity of disease, for example. So we have class one problems with the genetic code, uh, nonsense mutations, early stop cons and so forth, doesn't even make a full length CFTR. In class two, we have uh, def- defective processing. Uh, so this would be the Delta 5 F-O- F508. Uh, that um, that one's missing amino acid in a critical spot so the protein doesn't fold. And there are others, and so that protein's degraded and nothing makes it to the plasma membrane. And then we have class three, four, and five, which we have um, a certain type of CFTR that makes it to the plasma membrane, but something is wrong with it, depending on what class you're in. So in class three... That's, that's a defective regulation or what I call a gating defect. So this would be like G551D uh, that, that ivacaftor really helps. In class four, we have uh, defective conductance, which is another sort of nuanced electrophysiological property. Conductance is the opposite of resistance. So these channels make it just fine and they can open and close, but there's some kind of resistance somewhere through the, the membrane that the chloride ions just don't want to go through. And so there's no chloride secretion and hence no movement of water and hydration and all that. And there's a class five and there's also a class six. But we're going to come back to uh, particularly this one because either helps helps uh, G551D in class three. So now that we know that we're making band C protein for a lot of these mutants in R933, despite the fact that evolution has called for an arginine for 350 million years, we wanted to study uh, the electrophysiological properties. And so I'm doing that in collaboration with Dr. Wei Wang at our UAB Cystic Fibrosis Research Center, uh, which is actually has 40 years of continuous funding from a foundation funding and from the NIH. I just was reminded about that, which is pretty incredible. We have a lot of resources to be able to do these kind of collaborations. And what you can see here is a little bit bleached because we turned up, we turned up the projector so we could see my movies is on a patch clamp, you have a very, very small glass pipette that you actually push down onto the surface of a cell that's expressing a lot of your channel protein. And then the the membrane seals around the glass pipette and you actually pull the pipette back and, and rip a tiny bit of this patch membrane off. And it forms such a tight electrical seal against the glass that there's no electrical current, no ions can leak past the glass. And so you're literally studying the electrical currents from any of the channels that are actually in the membrane, any of the CFTR that's actually in the membrane. And so we can do this procedure for all of these R933 mutations and study electrophysiological properties of the mutants to see if, they, if there's some kind of um, bad behavior b- between them. So this is what wild, ty- wild type CFTR looks like. So the arginine 933 is the native arginine. So I have show the arginine here. And um, the middle line here is zero. No current would move at all unless you apply a voltage to this little patch. Uh, It takes a voltage to actually drive ions back and forth. So the patch clamp is actually alternating between a positive and negative voltage. And you can sort of see that. And the, the length of these lines is the intensity of the current due to CFTR. So, if you phosphorylate CFTR and get a basic control current, this is pretty normal that the the channel is going to open up. And this is very robust current. And it's also known that a little bit of uh, 770 can also boost wild type CFTR, it could actually continue to uh, increase the open probability. So, this looks perfectly normal. And this has been reproduced in many, many laboratories. And important at the end, we use a very specific CFTR inhibitor called CFTR172 to totally shut off everything. That's how we know that this current that we're seeing is due to chloride and not some other ion. So we know that CFTR is conducting these ions. So I told you that R933K lysine is also positive. That should be a relatively conservative substitution and indeed it is, this protein looks identical to wild type CFTR in patch clamp, okay? So it's really interesting. Why would it be an arginine for 350 million years if lysine is just fine? We don't know that yet. There may be other issues that we don't know about yet either. Okay, so I remind you, going back to the good work by Ju Chen in Science 2019, they did not see any Ivacaftor binding in three separate mutations, including the one I'm focusing on here, R933A, no binding of ivacaftor. So we were really surprised to see that ivacaftor can actually help this mutant function in patch clamp. So there are problems. This basal current is extremely low for this mutant. You can add a lot of pKa, and it doesn't want to open up except when you add VX770, you get an actual increase in open probability. That's very, very exciting. I think the possibility that they may have missed the observation in the science paper, as you probably remember, the R933A specifically is very weakly expressed. I think there's some kind of pathology with this mutant and there aren't as many channels in the membrane. It's still band C And of course here, it is actually still functional in the presence of VX770. That's potentially exciting. It doesn't exactly fit the dogma that all three hydrogen bonds are required for ivacaftor to work. And it also means that in any patients in the world that have some mutation of R933 that cannot putatively hydrogen bond, ivacaftor may still help. So I was talking with um, the gal from Vertex Uh, I think her name is Jessica. Um, And I'm finding out that this is um, not common, but it is well known. uh, It is known that there can be some mutations that are not yet approved, um, that Vertex can look at pretty quickly and get approval for. So we're pretty excited about that. And the last few slides I'll summarize. So I'm not gonna show you any more individual patch clamp experiments, but here is a summary of, of that basal baseline current only wild type and all the rest of the mutants. And as you can see, every single mutant here, except for the last two, exhibit a significantly lower basal current. For something's wrong with the channel, doesn't wanna open up as much in a, in a baseline stimulated function. Um, K of course is conservative, so that's really no different than wild type. But the, the real surprise is when you look at the fold of stimulation that 770 affords, above wild-type levels. And it turns out that many of these mutants, including R933, actually have significantly higher fold stimulation of VX770 than wild-type CFTR does. And that's very, very exciting. And the fact that there are many of them, one, two, three, four, five, six, at least that are statistically significant, suggests that basically any mutation that's found at this site could be assisted by VX770, and we're we're very excited about that. There are two known rare mutations: R933G and R933S. And I just learned this morning that Vertex has approval for R933G, but not R933S. And so I'm trying to get them to get R933S through their factory so they can help those those people too. There are not, not not very many of them at all. I think there's only a handful in the world, but. I also think that we're going to start seeing more of these mutations pop up, uh, and, and we should be ready for them, basically. So we started with cryo-EM, structural biology. That's what my, my group really wants to know. Is Ivacaftor bound to this spot, or is it, has it moved to a different spot? Is there, another, is there another site, for example? And we need cryo-EM to answer that for us. So with the help of John Kappas, who is funded by the CF Foundation, he provides us with purified protein. He can make the mutants pretty quickly. Um, and we purify him in the lab. He's taught us how he purifies because his group is very good at it. And so we're following his purification protocols. And we're seeing very, very nice, what we call two-dimensional class averages of, of R933A here. And our goal is to reconstruct a three-dimensional map and see if we can calculate where the X770 resides. Right now, the resolution is about six angstrom. It's not quite sharp enough for us to be able to see the protein. And uh, this is a particularly challenging mutant because the R933A, as I showed you, is very weakly expressed. And so it's been a challenge for us to really get it to high yields and high purity. Um, And we're also excited about R933S because that one might actually express to better levels. So, I left time for questions, but uh, let me just go over some really important conclusions. CryoEM is accelerating CFTR, structural pharmacodynamics. We're, we're starting to learn more about how these drugs work. I didn't talk about VX809, but that's in a completely different spot. But it's really amazing how 809 can help repair CFTR. We understand how that happens. Um, I told you about disposition 933, which we locked onto in human CFTR. It appears critical for the efficacy of 770 and uh, several mutations, especially R933A, were actually strongly stimulated by VX770 um, despite the fact that the group didn't actually see binding in their binding studies. And so I propose that IvoCaftor should be considered for any mutation at position 933, including 933S, um, even though it can't theoretically undergo hydrogen bonding. So I thank the people in my lab that did the work. Uh, Christina Lay, who did her PhD in my lab on MDR1. Uh, she's now helping out with CFTR. Cole Martin is a graduate student in my lab who's learning cryoEM, em uh, And Mr. Amit Chapani is in our first wave of undergrad to uh, uh, physician scientist training program. So the CF Foundation is now funding uh, students to be selected from uh, regional uh, undergrad institutions to do basically a summer uh, uh, research experience. And so Meet did that in my lab and he is a super, he is really, really a smart guy. Um, I think his career is very, very bright and he's very excited about CF. Um, he wants to become a straight MD. I'm trying to convince him to do MD, PhD. <laughs> um, I told you about Dr. Kappas, a critical collaboration. Uh, funded for many years to crank out the CFTR protein and Wendy Yang, who pur- purified the first few batches for us. Um, and in our research center, we have Dr. Wei Wang, uh, the electropho- very talented electrophysiologist um, who has conducted the Pats-Clamp studies and Dr. Carl Hu, who actually helped design uh, the constructs in order for uh, uh, um, the Western blot as well as uh, band C test as well. So.